Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you, as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of Episode 1921-2, where today we'll be revisiting some of the biggest stars of 1920 to see how they fared in 1921. Today's music comes courtesy of artists that we spoke about in our 1920 series, Al, the world's greatest entertainer, Jolson, Paul, king of jazz, Whiteman, Eddie, old banjoized Cantor, and John McCormick, who billed himself with his talent, but was literally a papal count. Look it up. Will these men live up to their nicknames? Find out with us in today's episode. All of our artists for this episode have been previously reviewed, so if you'd like to learn more about their biographies, you can find them in episodes throughout the 1920 series. But to make sure we remember who's who, here are three lines on each of them to prime your thought pump. First, Al Jolson, who was one of the most influential entertainers of the 20th century without a doubt, and is responsible in no small part for defining how Broadway musicals sound today by inspiring generations of entertainers. At his peak, he was called the greatest entertainer of all time, but he was well known for performing in blackface long after it had fallen from popularity, a choice that would taint his legacy severely. In our first reviews of Jolson, he earned a pitiful 12.7 despite being one of the biggest selling artists of the year. Today we'll be listening to another one of Jolson's major hits, Avalon, for which he's credited as a co-composer. The song hit number two on the charts in 1921 and would cost Jolson $25,000 when he was sued for lifting the opening from a famous opera, Puccini's El Civan La Stelle. And to our Italian listeners, I apologize for what I have just done to your language. Our next musician, Eddie Cantor, was for the most part a less serious singer who focused his talents on entertaining the audience with his interactions and expressive face. His 1920 performances earned him a 13.7 average score, narrowly losing in a head-to-head battle with Frank Crummett in our 1920-4 episode. Cantor performed in New York vaudeville acts with Ziegfeld's Follies for 10 years at the height of the Follies' popularity. Paul Whiteman, known as the King of Jazz, could be said to have started the big band movement that would evolve over the next 20 years into the height of the 40s swing movement. His average score of 16 for our 1920 review was one of the higher average totals for performers with multiple songs, and he would go on to become one of the most influential performers of the decade for his work with George Gershwin. Whiteman was one of the first mainstream performers to popularize jazz as we know it today, but likely benefited from the lack of competition from black composers who were not able to find work in the entertainment industry easily due to racism, but who were also performing inventive jazz tunes that we'll start to hear in the coming episodes. Lastly, it is a shame that we only get one song from John McCormick today, as his lyrics are like a little break from the world for as long as you'll let him take you away. While McCormick was classically trained as an opera singer whose raw skill and expressive voice led him to an average of 18 out of 25 in our 1920 series, his voice was heard in popular recordings like the one we'll be listening to today as well, and he shines here just as brightly. Because of his skill, the musicians that back him are usually much better than normal, and you'll hear that in today's Learn to Smile. So, let's stop talking about the music and start listening. 
Normally, this is the part of the podcast where I tell you that if you're not listening on Spotify at this point, you really should be, but Spotify has changed how podcasts like Cunningham's Law Review operate, and so I no longer need to publish separate playlists to play music in our episodes. Through the miracles of modern technology, all you need to do is start the podcast episode and you'll hear everything in a row without pressing another button, including the music. Today's episode is posted to Spotify under the title Cunningham's Law Review 1921-2, and it's all in one piece. You can find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit or leave us an anchor voicemail. That's all for side A of episode 1921-2. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1921-2. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, and we sure like you to, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Today's musicians, Al Jolson, Eddie Cantor, Paul Whiteman, and John McCormick were the superstars of their day, and these artist songs comprised many of the number one hits for the year. But were they any good? Starting with Al Jolson's Avalon, which was a number two song in 1921, I'm a bit surprised the song did so well. It's a song about a city in Southern California called Avalon, and Avalon does actually exist and really does have flying fish. Were the song about anything more interesting than leaving a girlfriend there and thinking about going back, I think the song had a shot at a higher authenticity based on telling us about a real place, but it ends up with a 3 out of 5 instead. It doesn't seem that Jolson has built on any of the trends of jazz or blues into his repertoire here, and instead continues on with what he was doing last year, earning a 2 for innovation. The song is forgettable but doesn't turn you off and so earns a 3 for catchiness, and similarly for mastery. In artistic statement, it's fun to notice that while Al Jolson told us he left, he never really sings about why or even explains that he had to. A fun fact about Avalon, California, before we leave this one behind. You can't own a car there without jumping through a lot of hoops. But the old Mini Coopers are so light that they get classified like golf carts for permit purposes. And so I think that's a loophole that they're ironically the only ones small enough to drive through. Jolson's Ohio Omayo surprised me because it was really risque. As Eddie Cantor sang about a song who stayed with her boyfriend for being a good lay in her 1920 series of episodes, here Jolson sings about a country bumpkin of a woman who isn't slow as rumors would lead you to believe. The song contains quite a few humorous statements and here's two good examples. While she's not a looker in the moonlight it doesn't matter and a country girl is just like a Ford, not very stylish but the service oh lord. Jolson employs a unique singing technique here to make Ohio and Omayo rhyme without being annoying and earns a foreign authenticity and catchiness. For innovation, the song doesn't do much better, but it doesn't stay as stagnant as Avalon and receives it three. And for saying nothing important but saying something and doing it over music that stays out of the way, Jolson earns a three for mastery and artistic statement. Moving on to Jolson's worst scoring song of the year, which earns a 12 out of 25, he sings of a Swedish man who is looking for a wife and finds a woman who's literally named Scandinavia. 
While she can't cook without putting him in the hospital, which kind of sounds like a Ben Stiller romantic comedy plot, she can sing, and so he stays. It's a silly song without much authenticity intended, but Jolson also seems less engaging than usual, for which authenticity, innovation, and mastery suffer with twos. The remaining points come from a pair of threes in catchiness and artistic statement. Since the song is at least an interestingly told story of a man who wants a Swedish wife in the 1920s when Swedes were considered an immigrant class of people, giving us a snapshot of that. Moving on to Eddie Cantor's Margie, I was really disappointed with Eddie Cantor as both of his songs are in 12s. In both Margie and I Never Knew I Could Love Anybody, Cantor's average three-point authenticity is burdened with stagnant sound and stilted delivery that earn innovation and catchiness twos. Where the songs differ is in mastery and artistic statement. In Margie, Cantor sings about a woman who he is begging to stay faithful to him, having bought her a ring and a house, but he opens the song with her cheating on him by hanging out with another man for hours. It's not really consistent unless he's an idiot, so it's an average delivery of a weak statement for a three and a two. Flipping that around, Cantor's voice can't meet the demands of the falling melodies of the better song, I Never Knew I Could Love Anybody. And so while the song is better, Cantor drops the ball for a two and three in mastery and artistic statement, respectively. I'll be very interested to see if there are any covers of this song in the future, as I think it has legs that didn't get exercised by Cantor. On the other hand, we have Paul Whiteman's Song of India, which is our first 20-point song of the year. Here, Whiteman's Foxtrot grabs your attention right away and then starts hopping along. The song is a jazzed-up version of Rimsky-Korsakov's 1896 opera, Sadko, which adds the jazz instrumentation to the wonderful melodies of the composer's work. Whiteman is really pushing the big band sound early in this song, and you can hear the seeds of 40 swing music starting to take root when the horns go off together. The song is one you can count on coming back to, shows distinct mastery, and breathes life into what at the time of the recording was a 20-plus-year-old song by giving it a powerful jazz arrangement and upping the tempo. The song receives fours across the board. On the other hand, Say It With Music was a number one hit for Whiteman in 21, but it surprises me because without the words, which are playful verses about how it's easy to express your emotions and thereby get women to kiss you with music, the song seems a bit flat. This is the version that actually popularized the song, which had lyrics by Irving Berlin, but other versions, like those by John Steele and Ben Selvin, had a slower tempo, and this version is more fun to listen to than the over-the-top melodramatic versions like Steele's. The song could definitely be better, though, as Whiteman's band doesn't really challenge themselves here, and the lack of lyrics makes it forgettable. With an AICMA score of 3-3-2-3-2 for a total score of 13, this one was a bit of a disappointment. On the other other hand, in a very different interpretation of a popular song without vocals, Whiteman's faster-tempoed version of My Man opens with the back-and-forth sawing of his violin section. This song, which we first heard in our last episode from Eileen Stanley, has new life and is far more innovative with the trends of the times being applied directly. As opposed to Say It With Music, where the vocals were more or less forgotten, here the vocals are replaced with a saxophone and violin that seem like they're trying to speak to each other, which is a good way to arrange the song while being technically impressive as well. For authenticity, catchiness, and artistic statement, the song receives threes, but in innovation and mastery receives fours for a total score of 17. In another 17-scoring song, Whiteman's arrangement for Everybody's Step goes into the New Orleans jazz bag of tricks with trilling horns that pulse and swing to grab your attention. 
The saxophonist again shines on this track, and two-thirds of the way through the song, the band really comes to life, having built on the instrumental themes throughout the song and bringing them together suddenly for impact. The song suffers from the same downfalls as My Man, meaning that without lyrics to make a more detailed artistic statement, authenticity and catchiness are held back from greatness and receive threes, while mastery and innovation buoy the track with fours. In our final track for today, John McCormick, whose excellent operatic tenor brings a deep richness to the beautiful imagery of his songs, earns a 15 for Learn to Smile. McCormick sounds like no one else, but he does sound like himself without developing his sound from his 1920 recordings, and he's really starting to sound as if he's in an old school compared to the many popular recordings that we just heard. Authenticity receives a 3, with innovation stagnating with a 2. The song isn't meant to be catchy, but doesn't drive you away and receives a three. Where McCormick does shine, though, is with beautiful lyrical imagery and his strong, distinct tenor that earn him a four for mastery. While the song features an average three artistic statement, it's a positive one that McCormick delivers well. That's all for today's episode, and I would say that Paul Whiteman is really starting to shine with bringing the sounds of jazz and blues into the mainstream. However, he won't have the stage to himself much longer, as in our next episode we'll be covering the original Dixieland Jazz Band, who claimed to have invented the New Orleans jazz sound. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com r slash Cunningham's Law Review, or reach out to us through an anchor voicemail. If you leave us an anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, share the show on your social networks, and yeah, that's a tongue twister. And if you don't like it, don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. Nobody else works here.